Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Most scientists are resoundingly indifferent to the sociology of science. Of course, at some level, everyone recognizes that science is a human activity practiced by fallible creatures who are often significantly driven by their egos, biases, and internal cultures. But the prevailing view is that focusing too much on all of that significantly distracts from the intrinsic beauty and merit of the science itself, reducing our objective understanding of nature to some sort of elaborate political debate that's not only profoundly wrong, but also inherently dangerous providing fodder to those who want to blithely ignore scientific consensus to pursue their own corporate or financial interests. But what happens when the sociology of science somehow needs to be acknowledged in order to appreciate the popularity of the scientific claims themselves? That's the position of Princeton University cosmologist Paul Steinhardt, one of the original pioneers of the theory of inflationary cosmology, who is now one of its harshest critics. I was always interested in science. Uh, you were in Miami, right? Is that, is that where you... Well, no. My, so my father was in the Air Force. Oh, right. He was a lawyer in the Air Force, a judge advocate in the Air Force. And so we moved all over the place. Uh, so I was born in Washington, D.C. And uh, we moved when I wasn't old enough to know anything to Alabama for a brief period. Then we moved... It's not to, your fault? Is that, is that what you meant by that? Not my, yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> and then we moved to Paris, France. So I actually spoke French before I spoke English. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. I also forgot French before I forgot English, so I don't remember any of it. But um, I used to play in the neighborhood with kids. And have you have you forgotten English? Is there something I've missed? No, no, I think I. <laughs> we don't know how long the second one's going to take, <laughs> but the French is definitely forgotten. And um, how, how long were you there for? So you were you were in Washington, and then you, then you went to Alabama. I was, I was and yeah, Paris. I was there for a few months in D.C. and then uh, uh, Alabama for probably a year or two or something, maybe, yeah, I guess it'd be a year or two, in the next three years, uh, next three years. In, in France. Oh. And I came back uh, in time to begin elementary school, that kind of thing. I see. But uh, my father used to tell me, you know, stories and fairy tales, but part of his stories, for some reason, which I don't quite understand, I don't know the answer to, uh, were stories about scientists and scientists making discoveries. And I always loved that. That was, to me, the best stories. And so... Um, do you remember any of them? Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, uh, my favorite one used to be about Madame Curie, or the Curies discovering radium, and and uh, so he had you know an elaborate story about the discovery and uh, how they had to work so hard to to find these little traces of uh, of material that they were looking for. And um, but the exciting moment was the moment where, to me, always where you know they knew something that no one else knew. I just thought that was just. So cool that you could be the first person to know something. And um, yeah, I think that's the thing that got me interested in science from the very beginning. When I was nine years old, my uh, uh, father passed away uh, from Hodgkin's disease. And I think, you know, then my interests in science were more biology, medicine, sort of. I thought, you know, that was something related to that. Yeah, related to, um, to, uh, yeah, seeing if I could 
solve a problem, solve the problem that had killed him. Um, and, but I was also getting exposed to a lot of mathematics at the time just because of the school I was in. Uh, so after my father died, we moved to Miami, uh, and that's where I went, uh, staying through high school. Right. And so it turns out in Miami, they have a very uh, progressive education system uh, in that particular county, Dade County, and they had a lot of opportunities for me to take math at an advanced stage, uh, take it at the university, and so, you know, so. Um, was there a particular teacher who influenced you or you remember strongly? There were lots of them. Um, yeah, too many, you know, I would say, yeah, I, I really liked school and I liked all my teachers. So, you know, I could, I, shortly after I got to uh, Miami, I, you know, or, I guess it was the second year, you know, I, I had a teacher, Mrs. Thornburg, who was very interested in math for an elementary school teacher. And so she's, she helped um, let me sort of accelerate, you know, relative to the class to study a lot of advanced math. This was also the time of, you know, post-Sputnik when the math programs were changing in school. So there was lots of novel educational material in math that you could get your hands on. So you could get exposed to things like set theory and, um, and number theory and things like that at a fairly young age. Um, and you were doing this independently or, or under the encouragement of? She, slightly under her encouragement and then independently and then um, yeah, I think it was. About, I guess it was about a year later. I had a chance to do. I was invited to do an original research project in math, um, to present to the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. They were having a convention in Miami. So they'd chosen. I don't know how they chose the individuals, but they had somehow decided this. If you want to do something, if you, you know, try to find something you can do research on. So I. I, I found a project I wanted to research on, which was in the area of mathematics. What, what was it? Um, it involved um, uh, searching for prime numbers, so algorithms for efficiently searching for, for prime numbers. So you, you didn't crack the Riemann hypothesis? Didn't crack, no, didn't, no, it wasn't anything as um, like that. I, I'd read a Scientific American article uh, by someone, I'm saying someone, it turned out to be Stanislaw Ulam, or about Stanislaw Ulam, in which he had found um, algebraic expressions, um, let's say quadratic um, polynomials, um, the sort of polynomials you study in algebra, in which, in which if you substitute integers, they'd give you prime numbers for a certain uh, duration before they suddenly give you something huh. non-prime. And so the question was, you know, could you make longer and longer right. sets of polynomials that would give you longer and longer sequences? Sure. So that's what I was playing with as a child. It was something you could do. Uh, and uh, so it introduced me to you know, a lot of basic number theory, uh, uh, famous hypotheses about prime numbers and things like that. And I had a little project in which I had found some polynomials that did an okay job. And you were doing this more or less independently? Did you have other friends? Was there a group of you? No, this was just me independently. Yeah, I just, uh, 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 yeah, I was just, I, I got, once I got interested and in I just wanted to f figure it out, I just thought it was, uh, the idea that you couldn't know, you couldn't predict what the prime numbers was, is, which is, a, you know, something, you, one of the first real puzzles you come in contact with as a child that's a profound puzzle, it's actually a deep puzzle. I just found that, you know, just, just grabbed me, just like, like it grabs, I think, a lot of yeah. young people who are mathematically inclined. Um, but at the same time, I was, you know, doing other things. I was, uh, I had a chemistry lab at home, and I had a, 
you know, I thought of myself as being a, a biology lab at home, and I had, uh, um, uh, and I was always work doing, and, and the space program was occurring at the time. I was right. a big space program. Oh, so you're going off in all different directions. So this, this, yeah, yeah. this whole business of cosmology and condensed matter physics, that, that, that started from a very early age. You're doing the, the broad several, interest, yeah, several, the, several I was just really love, I just really love science. And, and, um, and one of my favorite books, I think when I was probably, you know, my first books when I could you know, begin to read was a science book, which was a, an eclectic collection of um, uh, chapters, each about a, what's going on now in, in science. Um, and um, and and each one of them was fascinating to me. You know, if you it was like you know being in a uh, kid in a candy store. Yeah, exactly. A kid in a candy store. You know, just I just felt it was a wonderful playground for things. Mm. Uh, and what I didn't realize until years later, when I happened to look at it, is that book was actually a collection of um, uh, vignettes focusing on different scientists at Caltech. Uh, right. that, that, that book happened to be generated. It was, it was know, a Caltech was, promotional. It was a, well, or a, someone who went to Caltech to, to right. write their popular book on science, which is where I eventually went to undergraduate. <laughs> so and so I subconsciously, I, maybe it had an that, effect. Exactly. I was totally, pro <laughs> here I thought I was making my choice independently, but I had been totally pre-programmed. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so I, had bro I always had, yeah, broad interest in a lot, and whenever, uh, you know, I could get my school work done early enough that I was always doing some sort of project you know, beyond what was in school, some sort of research project. I liked to feel I was doing research and discovering things. So I liked sort of uh, either uh, uh, um, in any field to do something where I felt I was discovering something that right. people didn't know. Uh, but I probably wasn't, I mean, I know I wasn't doing that, but I, but I was simulating it. You know, at the same time, I was reading about scientists and things like that. So I've always been interested in science. Do, do you keep reading about scientists? I mean, now that you're actually uh, a very well-respected practicing scientist in many different domains, are you still interested in the history of science, scientific biographies? Do you have time to, to pursue those interests? Much still? less so, because you know, I, I, probably because I, I feel that such biographies don't really capture hmm. the reality <laughs> of the story. You, you know, know better. <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're designed to focus on the individual. Right. And I think of science as much more of a complex interrelationship between individuals and ideas coming out. It's, it's, it, the reality is much more interesting than the way science is often portrayed. Science is often portrayed as focusing on an individual or a few individuals. And the reality is it's a very complex interaction of ideas bubbling up here and here. And then suddenly something happens that, you know, you point to that moment as being the moment of discovery, but it wouldn't have happened without all these other other interactions, and, and the reality is much more interesting. It's not really captured well, uh, I think, in books. So I want to get, obviously, yeah. back to you and your work, but just as a diversion, since you brought it up. So why do you think that is? I mean, my, uh, my sense is that, uh, from what you were saying, histories of science, or these popular histories of science, tend to be more hagiographies. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you pronounce the word. Hagiographies, mm -hmm. I've yeah, just seen it written, but anyway. Um, this worshipful notion of the scientist as this independent, great discoverer, this Einsteinian figure who sits in his room for 10 years and comes up with these great ideas. Mm -hmm. is, that, um, is that part of a mythology that um, you think society to some extent needs to keep it going? Is it part of the fact that, um, that it makes people feel that it's okay that they are not scientifically literate if they're not scientifically literate because that's only for those 
select geniuses who were by themselves in their basement somewhere? What, what do you think that has to do with? Um, because listening to you, it seems very yeah. compelling, this idea that, well, the reality, as you just described it, the reality is, is much more interesting and exciting. It's much yes. more collaborative. It's, 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 it's more dynamic. It's hard. Sorry, there's a... Maybe just pause till that loud and, and we heard some noise before. Was that, is that going to be the people oh, that were talking outside the hall? Was that, was that being picked up at all? Okay, so I don't know what I was in the middle of saying. Something, something. Uh, why, why are people uh, right. focusing so, on individuals? It, 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 exactly, because the reality, as you pointed out, is, is in my mind much more dynamic, much more interesting, much more compelling as a story. Uh, not to mention the fact that it happens to be true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's harder to, first of all, I think it's harder to research such a story because you have to then think about many individuals. Right. And they come in and out of the story for brief moments, but maybe make, make an important contribution. How do you handle that in a story so that it makes any, so that it makes any written sense? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's hard to research because, um, you know, years after the fact, you, 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 the individual is sort of... Who, withdrawn you know, from the... Yeah, the, the, the smaller players have, have, have withdrawn, but yet they were essential to, to, to the prime, right. uh, to the prime result. And, um, yeah, so, and the, and the, so it's certainly easier to write it as uh, individual hero worship stories, and, and maybe to some degree it's easier to digest. I'm not sure about the digestion part. I think we could tolerate a few complicated stories of how things are, are discovered. Occasionally you read, I've run across books which do that in some discovery, like, um, oh, let's say if you're talking about the history of the Internet or something like that, which is lots of different uh, types of organizations and types of people contributing at different levels. How was Al Gore? Did Al Gore come up with that? You know, that's one version of the story, but that's not a very good version of the story compared to the real story, you know, so which is much more interesting. So right. I, th I just think it's probably hard to write. Right. and and maybe harder to digest, but I don't know that we need it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's related, you know, it's related to the fact that uh, this hero thing does lead to a lot of, you know, this other phenomenon of prize giving and things like that, which ends up being for individuals. I've always thought it should be for ideas. And then you should fund people who are working on the follow-up to that idea. That would be a real contribution to the the science, I think, if, if you would award things in that way. So that's yeah. a great idea. Um, again, I want to get yeah. back to this, but we were just talking off camera yeah. about, um, at least tangentially, about some individuals who uh, have been involved in very tangentially philanthropic activities related to science and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, that doesn't seem to be the way that things are going. There have been some new prizes, but the prizes that I've seen anyway, maybe I haven't been paying sufficient attention, are all given uh, to individual people. And there's nothing wrong with that. One doesn't, yeah. one doesn't want to be castigating people who are, who are investing or giving their philanthropic monies towards scientists, yeah. uh, heaven forfend. But that would be a great idea. Have you ever talked to any of these rich guys and said, why don't you think about giving a, a prize about ideas? Um. I haven't. <laughs> no, you, you should, really. That's a great idea. Um, has, has anything like that ever been done in any other field in, 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 in science or, or, or anything? Do you know? I don't think so. I, I think the closest that you get to that, which isn't quite the same thing, is, um, oh, uh, for example, the Simons Foundation, for example, has been ex you know, accepting proposals for collaborations to work on certain, certain um, um, forefront issues in science. 
Right. And and so that's more like a proposal. It's more like the standard proposal right. and review process, as opposed to a, a prize process, which is a little bit different. You of know, there's a different uh, flavor to it. And that's what that's what. Yeah. Uh, that's what would couple potentially to the media and to social aware, public awareness of these issues because yeah. people would say it's this idea and that would in turn not only hopefully direct people more towards the content but also move them away from this individual hero worship exactly. story. Exactly, yeah. So see, the reality is yeah. that's really something, you know, it's really this complex combination of people and there were these minor and major players and you can you know, and you distribute the money in a way so that the major players would have some discretion sure. of how it would be spent, but the minor players also get to benefit from such a thing, and it's a more, it's better for the science, and it's better, right. better way of representing what we do. But even the Nobel Prizes, which of course are quite different, even they have some apportionment of ratios. Not every, every time you give a Nobel Prize, it's with three people, it's it's not always a third, a third, a third, and sometimes a it's a quarter, bit. half, a half, and bit. so forth. So, yeah. I mean, the idea of having different ratios or different apportionments, it's uh, in and of itself, is not completely new. So no, no, I imagine. wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking no, 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 so, I, I, so much I, of the. Uh, I, I meant more that when you, uh, you, um, depending upon what the idea is, you'd be giving the award to. You could, you could, you have a lot of freedom to apportion the decision making. You say, okay, I'm going to let you guys decide exactly. how the young people in this field are going to get supported. No, 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 I, I know. I, I, was, I was not talking mm -hmm. about who the monies go to. I was yes. talking about the idea of the ratios. Yes, that, yeah. that, that, that's all I'm saying. That yeah. That's not a new idea. No, that by itself um, is. And, yeah. and yeah. so the, the idea of giving a prize for an idea and then letting on some, uh, on some objective process of who have been the people who have been most formative in the development of the idea then be in charge of distributing the monies towards younger people yeah. who are coming up. That's so you'd uh, have the honor. So the honor would still be there. Right. You'd be the honored right. one among the honored few. That's you'd get the honor, but instead of money that you put in your bank, you have money that you can actually put in the field. And I think that you know, I think that's a better way of. Uh, that's great. You should you should uh, you should write something about this. I would vote for you to be, <laughs> to be the, the science minister or something like that. To be, you know, I got to yeah. take you out of all these different scientific <laughs> fields, unfortunately. <laughs> but I th I think that's a great because these prizes have always driven me crazy. Personally, I've always had this thing about prizes. They've always uh, I realize that it's good for public awareness and so forth. That some actually don't think, level, I actually think they're more bad. Part of my. Part, part of my view is I find them more bad than good. I mean, all my worst experiences are with people who are eager to get prizes and, 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 and at least the worst behaviors. Uh, and I just feel if we could take that out of there and reduce it. So I think the recent trend to increase the number of such things actually is, just makes it more intense and, uh, and, uh, and, and leads to some of the worst behaviors that I've seen. Interesting. So let's get back to yeah. to your um, research, as promised, and yeah. you you have had and still have these wide interests. Presumably, yeah. they're not quite as wide scientifically as they yeah. were when you were much younger. Yeah. And at some point, you decide physics is the thing. Uh, you mentioned going to Caltech. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure if you were studying other things at Caltech. So tell me when physics started playing uh, a greater and greater role in your scientific development. Well, it was basically the first weeks at Caltech that, that, <laughs> that influenced me. I went there thinking, by then I had done a lot of work in math, and I had, done, and I had actually done some you know, research in biology. So I thought, I was thinking I was going to do one or the other. I wasn't quite sure which. And I, my, of all the courses I had taken in school, my worst courses were my physics courses. So I had a pretty bad impression of physics coming into Caltech. But arriving there within a few weeks, um, uh, I was 
first of all exposed uh, uh, to the Feynman lecture series through uh, my, everyone had to take physics. In fact, one of my reasons for going to Caltech was I had this vague feeling in the back of my mind that I might like physics if I took it, gave it one more shot. I don't know why I had that thought, but um, I didn't really know much about it. Um, and if I went to some place other than Caltech where I didn't have to take physics, I'd probably, I'd probably fill my schedule with math and biology. Caltech, you had to take math, you had to take physics, you had to take chemistry, you had to take a biology course. There were lots of science requirements. I said, this will just keep make sure I, I try all those things and I give everything a shot. And That's it, strikingly it, mature, actually, for, for a young person. But anyway. Well, whatever. So within a few weeks, I, 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 we began the Feynman Lecture Series, which if anyone's ever read those books, you know, they're just, they're not so much about physics, they're about how to think. They were like, my, it was like suddenly, every, all the ways I had studied science up to that point seemed wrong. And suddenly there was a new way that you could actually use your mind to figure out how things work. You could actually figure it out with your own mind and not um, learn it from uh, a bunch of rules. Yeah. Um, so, so was Feynman, I mean Feynman was there, was Feynman... Feynman was there, so he wasn't teaching the course that year, but he was also a very strong character on campus. And while I was at Caltech, I had the good fortune of working with him in various ways. Yeah? So, uh, so my, what, what were those? Tell me, tell me some, some of those. So, so the first way I interacted with him was um, uh, organizing a course, a, a pseudo-course called Physics X. So well, you, were, you were involved in Physics X? Yeah, my roommate and I put together. Well, I, there may have existed one version a few years before us, but my roommate and I went to Feynman and asked if he'd be willing to put together Physics X, uh, do Physics X. So, and he agreed, much to our delight. And, uh, and that was extremely influential. Um, so the idea of Physics X, as, as you probably know, was that um, one afternoon in a week he would come and he would talk about whatever science you wanted to talk about. There were various rules about what you were, kinds of questions you weren't, weren't allowed to ask. Like what? He didn't, want, he didn't want people who were erudite. He wanted people who were curious. So you didn't, couldn't come and ask him about, tell me about the such and such equation. You know, he, wasn't, that wasn't, he, he wasn't there to be a dictionary. Uh, you could come and ask him about a phenomenon. You know, uh, what color is a shadow and why? You know, that kind of question. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes it would be something he knew instantaneously about, but more often than not, it would be something he'd be struggling with. He'd be trying to, you know, it would be something he hadn't heard of. <clears throat> so he'd be, you'd be seeing him engage the question. Uh, the most important thing was, to me, was that every question was considered interesting. There was no area where this is, you know, this is not what I do, and this is what I do. Every question was interesting. <clears throat> so... That was really influential to me because it meant, although he was renowned as a particle physicist at the time, um, that was his you know, claim to fame, um, someone who, even though he was a famous particle physicist, didn't only think about particle physics. He was interested in everything. Mm. Now, this was from the point of view of an innocent undergraduate that hadn't done much reading about Feynman's history. And uh, we, we, if, I had, if I knew about that history, I would have known that he'd had that interest you know, going at the time, I would have known him going back. And I, and of course, since then, after that point, he also, you know, began to work on things like quantum, or talk about things like quantum computing and, 
and um, got involved in other activities. So it was clear, you know. Well, he was famously broad, I mean, just yeah. remarkably broad in, in, yes. in, in his interests. Yeah. But, but I hadn't really, as an undergrad, I hadn't seen someone, you know, a close, you know, it's one thing to know someone sure. like that from a distance. This is someone in the room with you, you know, who's... who's uh, but that means they can have even more impact, presumably. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And did then you, the, other fun, and the other fun part of it is every now and then someone would ask a question. For some reason, he'd break out into one of those stories that, you know, that, not, that later appeared in, you know, the books like Cheryl, You're Joking and things like that. Um, so I got to hear them, you know, from the horse's camp. mouth, right. not in some prepared form, but in some, not fully prepared form, but in some spontaneous form. Those were always fun, too. Did you used to ask questions yourself in physics X? Did you? Yeah, yeah you must I, have asked. The, yeah, I'd always, I'd always try to come with some sort of phenomenon or some, some sort of thing that I was trying to, uh, I, I would try to, it was like a homework assignment for me to try to, to come up with something. But you didn't get a chance to ask, you know, usually other, other people, you didn't get a chance to ask a question every week. Usually, you know, two or three questions would manage to be covered in such a session. Cool. And maybe not even that, maybe only one. Did, did other people, I've always wondered, I had no idea you were involved in mm -hmm. this. I'd heard about this. This mm -hmm. is mythological uh, <laughs> business. Did did that have any effect with other faculty? I could imagine that if you're on faculty somewhere, you might think, hey, that's a great idea. I'd like to do that sort of thing as well. But the does, other people copied it? Yeah, it doesn't seem like, no. it seems like Feynman just did Feynman things and then and it didn't really spill over into into other uh, Into other, well, I, well, I think, I mean, other people imitating that that style. You uh, mean? No, no, not so yeah. much imitating that style. I mean, having a having a, a course like that, or, or having that course continue, or or, yeah. or having other people that would other faculty members that would say, "That's great, I'll come along to that, and I'll yeah. I'll, I'll participate in that as well." Yeah. No, I, I think you know, I think it's, it it wasn't usual. It was it was his interest in in doing it. And, and the other thing that was odd about it, not only did not other faculty volunteer to do that. But um, the number, the, the audience was not nearly, you know, I would have said, you would think that should have been a packed room every yeah. time. But it wasn't. It was mostly a fairly small group of people. Most, you know, after, at, it, when it first start, would start each year, you know, it would be a fairly large group. But it would pretty quickly shrink to a, to a core group of, you know, 10 or 20 people or something like that. Which was great in the sense that it was yeah, yeah, for you one on one. But uh, so why but, is that? Is that is that because people were intimidated? Do you think, or is it because they just yeah. weren't curious, or or or, or I why? think it, yeah, I think people make themselves busy or something. I don't know. I can't answer the question since I since I would I'm I, asking you to since I wouldn't have missed it for anything. I can't answer the question. <laughs> I can't imagine uh, yeah, okay. missing that privilege. So uh, so I want to I want to move uh, to inflation, but I, I had yeah. I should have known about this other. This whole thing with farming. You, you said there were. Uh, so that's when I took I took uh, quantum field theory from him. Oh really? Yeah. So that was cool. and that was kind of interesting because you wouldn't have recognized it as a quantum field theory course. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't want to talk about Feynman. You know the stuff that typical stuff of a, yeah. of a quantum field theory course is Feynman diagrams and you you know you it barely slipped into the course. You wanted to talk about lots of other things. Uh, Lots of other things in terms of different ways of looking at. I remember somewhere there was this whole thing about QED for spinning paper plates or something that, that he got, and I could never understand what he was I, talking I, about. Was I, it I, like that, or I was it just different stuff? I didn't stuff? actually. I'll be honest and say I didn't get that much out of the course because quantum field theory is already a hard material. It doesn't have a kind of. By now, it's kind of been knocked down in sort of a, a yeah. certain core material. But yeah, yeah. at that time, it was still. You take. I took quantum field theory course from three different people, and no two courses w were the same. Okay. Uh, so, 
his content had a lot of solid state physics in it. So you didn't, you weren't thinking, and, and this is, you know, 1970s, not to, today that wouldn't seem so strange. Sure. But at that time it would seem sure. stranger. Sure. Um, and, but that was um, a sign of the way he thought. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, and, and so he's, and probably because that was his interest at the time, it was a lot more about that, and the particle physics barely got into it. Um, and then the third thing that I got involved with him was um, uh, for my senior research. I did my senior research with him, so uh, we worked on uh, two two problems. Um, one. Uh, it's a problem I, I had brought, uh, uh, which was about uh, super balls. So um, I, I don't know. Are they like so a super balls ball? Or something? So a super ball is is a toy. It's a very rubbery oh, oh, ball oh. that bounces very high. <laughs> uh, but when you bounce it around corners or under tables, it does weird things. Like if you if you've ever played with one and you threw it under the table, it, it would come back to you. Bounces at an angle or something. Yeah, like it, it would come back to you. Oh, or if you bounce yeah. it around a corner, it will do a kind of combination and it will come back out to you. Uh, uh, and, and the question was why, and yeah. that's what I want. And that was my first project. So I worked out the way uh, Super Balls uh, bounce. So I, how, how, how does it work? Well, uh, by, by, by work it out, I, what I mean is, first of all, the, f the key physics is that it is not just elastic, but it's very, um, it, do it doesn't slip. So it, 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 it roll, it's the close to a perfect roll. So you can't slide it along the table. Mm -hmm. it, it rolls along the table. That also means when it bounces, if it has a spin, right. it has to reverse its spin. Right. So it's reversing its angular momentum as well as its momentum. Right. And that's the thing that gives that's it all its peculiar character, seemingly sure. peculiar characteristics. So I worked out a set of matrices that would describe, uh, given you know, an, an incoming momentum and, and spin, you know, what it's out, and, and a surface, what its output's going to be. And then once you have that matrix, if you have a combination of surfaces, you just have to work out, you know, yeah. multiply the matrices together to work out what the final trajectory was. So what are the materials that it makes to be able to do that? Is that, is that it's just a very rub rubbery material. It just happens to be a very rubbery material, which when it hits most surfaces, is, uh, it can't, it can't uh, if you were to spin it, it can't, it can't uh, the friction. Uh, high friction, okay. high friction, but high elasticity. So right. very, very rubbery. If you ever felt spongy. one, spongy. Yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not spongy. It's actually, um, it's not hard like a. Um, it, it's sticky to your. You can kind of feel the stickiness in your hands, but it's hard because you need that for the elasticity. So it's whoever invented the material. Uh, Found it to have the you know right. It's a particular rubbery rubbery compound. Right. But for me, it was just a fun sure, problem that you could. The fun part was you could solve this problem entirely yourself. So that was fun. And then the other project we worked on was because um, uh, we had both attended a colloquium about something that's called a solitary wave, and nowadays we call it a soliton. And it's just a wave which has the property that's a it's a it's a nonlinear system. Even though it's a nonlinear system, it will maintain its form, and if it collides into another such wave, it'll just pass through it. And uh, we went to this colloquium, and we talked about it a little bit after, and Feynman was very skeptical that this was correct. It was, it was given by some engineer, I don't remember who it was. Um, he said, well, uh, I, I said, okay, well, I can, like, we can go on a computer, and we can try to work out the equations for it, and, um, and see if it really happens, which it does. I mean, the engineer was correct, it wasn't foolish stuff, mm -hmm. but it was kind of a 
project stimulated by a, a talk we had both seen together. And, and so this is when you were an undergraduate. Undergraduate, yeah. Um, and my understanding is, I, I want to yeah. get to, to your yeah. stuff, but this, <laughs> this, this is really Sorry. cool. No, no, no. <laughs> but, <laughs> you have to control the time, but, otherwise we'll end up. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Uh, we could let the other guy wait anyway, that's fine. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> we just have an event. You have nothing else to do for the next few no, hours anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when uh, my understanding is that Feynman, or famously, fairly famously, at least from, from my perspective, Feynman had a, a very strong interest in undergraduate teaching and mm -hmm. not a very strong interest in graduate teaching. He was sort of the opposite of the, the, the canonical uh, professor uh, mm -hmm. who wants to have uh, graduate students doing his or her work for, uh, for, for him or her. Um, more interested in stimulating fresh, bright, young minds into the way to think and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. That's, that's the idea. So that, is that, that's borne out by your experiences? Did, did well, you? certainly stimulated the undergraduates. I, don't, I can't say whether, I didn't have that much contact with the graduate students to know what the influence was within right. that group. Uh, at that time, there was both Feynman and Gelman there. I know sure. Gelman, uh, if you were going to characterize it the way you did, was more the opposite. He was focused on graduate students and postdocs. And Feynman certainly had broad interests and would, you know, go. I think in the public as well. You know, he gave a number of public talks and things like that. But I think he was interested in interacting with people. Um, was it as much fun to see those two go at each other? Did you have the opportunity? To I didn't see really. That as much I never as saw the so-called going at each other no. part. No. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure to what degree. Yeah, they, that was mythical. They, yeah, they did, or they just avoided one another, or something like you know, it could be something like an avoidance phenomenon. Um, yes, yeah, so I never, I never got any trace of that. Okay. So moving on with your career, mm -hmm. so you've had this formative experience at Caltech, mm -hmm. uh, and presumably at that point you're uh, starting to, or you've long started thinking. You said after a week or so of being there, you, you yeah. were already sold on the merits of, of physics and physics research. Right. Um, I didn't know what physics I wanted to do. Right. So I decided to spend every summer doing a different form of physics so that I would then decide from there which, you know, which one I would choose. And, Portfolio uh, theory. And so, but it turned out that you know, if, you, if I think about what happened afterwards, I thought I made a choice at the end of that, yeah. which was to do particle physics. But you know, one summer was spent general relativity. One summer was spent doing condensed matter theory. You know, one summer was spent doing particle experiment. Um, none of them have really gone away since then. So in some sense, although I focused for the, after, uh, as a graduate student, I focused on particle physics for a few years. By the time I finished graduate school, I was really eager to, you know, try some other things. And uh, so all those other things sort of weirdly came back in unexpected ways. Do you... It's a difficult question to ask you, but uh, having had some experience in a physics administrative capacity, as you know, you strike me as considerably broader than most. Is, is that, would that be a fair characterization of you from your perspective, or, or am I misrepresenting things? I, I think that's fair. I, I'm not alone, but there's a, you know, uh, I know a number. I have a number of colleagues at Princeton who have, you know, worked in several different areas that are quite, quite different. Um, I think there are just different types of scientific minds, and some of them are in this category where they're always broadly. Well, I, I guess one way I, uh, I think about it is some people come to science 
and end up finding a particular question, a burning question that they want to answer. I want to understand what are the fundamental constituents in nature. I want to understand the fundamental forces. Right. Um, uh, and then others, I, I put in sort of my category, I'm looking for a really good puzzle where I can discover something. Yeah. I want to discover something new. I don't care that much, actually, uh, what the field is. I want it to be exciting and a discovery and something new. And that's, a, and, and that's two very different ways of right. searching through, right. through possible projects to work on. So I, you know, it took me a while to decide that I was really going to commit myself to that. Because, you know, there's a lot of pressures to be of the first kind. All the social pressures are, are to be narrow. All the financial pressures, granting pressures and things like that are to be narrow. Uh, but, um, but at some point I decided, heck with that. <laughs> this is who I am. <laughs> I'm just going to try it my way. And if, right. you know, if that doesn't work, then I probably chose the wrong thing to do. And so as you're talking, I'm thinking again, not to beat this to death, but that's, that's very... Feynman-esque, as I, as well, I under, very uh, understand. Very much influenced. Now, it, and the, so my question is, was, do you think he influenced you, or do you think the reason why you resonated so strongly with him is because you had those, those predilections right from the very beginning, and it wasn't so much that your character was yeah. formed by him, but that's just who you were, and so there was a natural fit? I think it was both, to be honest. I think there was a natural resonance because I already had the broad interests, uh, but it sort of reawakened it in me, you know, so I, I, I thought... You know, you, you have this view as a student, oh, I've got to figure out what to choose. Yeah. And then suddenly, I real, with Feynman, I realized, oh, no, I don't, don't have, have to, to choose. <laughs> yeah, physics can be applied to anything, you know. That was, that was the real powerful thing, message, was that if you have the mind of a physicist, there's no subject that you, that, that you can't, uh, you can't uh, explore. And, um, and, and if you discover something interesting, it doesn't make a difference if it's about a piece of dust or a star, it still can be really important and really interesting if it's the right thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think, it was, I think it was both those things that, that certainly had a profound influence. And of course, he, he yeah. still had interest in biology as well, which he maintained throughout, throughout his year. Have, yeah. have you maintained, I'm almost ready to go into inflation, yeah. have, you, <laughs> <laughs> have you maintained some of your broader interest in science writ large in the biological sciences and in, uh, I don't know, maybe aspects of, I was going to say geophysics, but of course there are direct links there to, mm -hmm. to, to some of the things that you're doing. Or, or uh, well, let's just say the biological sciences, maybe aspects of chemistry or, or these sorts of things. Well, I guess I'd say that um, if you're in the second type of scientist where you're looking for something to work on, there would be an interesting discovery. I think of myself as being an intellectual predator. I am, you know, always having my ears open and sort of quietly thinking about various things in broad sets of fields. And um, most of those things never see the light of day because they, they don't get anywhere. But yeah, there's no boundaries to the, it's science, but there's no boundaries to the kinds of science I'm interested in. But, uh, but you want to hear about the things if it's, it turns out to work out. Yeah. So let's talk about inflation. Okay. Uh, and I know we're missing a bunch of stuff because, it's, but but uh, but otherwise, we would be here all. That's afternoon. right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you have to control the clock. Right. Um, so, tell me about how you got interested in the ideas of inflation right from the beginning, because you were mm -hmm. one of the people who was uh, right there when the the, the the theory was mooted to begin with, and you became excited by it. 
and tell me about how it's evolved and your thoughts have evolved in the process. Okay. Well, so first of all, after explaining to you that I had broad interests, I have to confess that up until I was a postdoc in, um, at Harvard, um, cosmology was not something I had ever paid any attention to. Uh, it's partly because um, as a physicist, so I'm learning to, as I was moving into physics, well, before physics, it just wasn't an area which had somehow attracted me. And when I moved into physics in those years, cosmology didn't have a great reputation as a science. It was, you know, considered, you know, borderline. It was often described as borderline metaphysics or physics or things like, you know. Sometimes more like, than borderline. Sometimes <laughs> more than borderline. And in those days, actually, the situation was better than that because um, the microwave background had been discovered and uh, uh, a lot of work was being done at the time on nucleosynthesis, but somehow that didn't filter down to me. So it's just an area I just didn't pay attention to. And when I took general relativity, it happened to be taught by a mathematical physicist who didn't teach the cosmology part of it, he just taught the general relativity part of it. So I really knew nothing about it. I knew a lot of particle physics by the time I was a postdoc. I, that, that was what my PhD was in, and rather abstract questions in quantum field theory, grand unified theories, this kind of thing. Uh, I had my, or redeveloped my interest in condensed matter physics, so I was beginning to work on some projects there. But cosmology I hadn't touched on. And, uh, but in 1980, um, at the theoretical seminar, the weekly seminar in high energy physics, one week, it was, the talk was by this fellow I'd never heard of before, Alan Guth, and he was talking about something called the inflationary universe. I went to it just like I'd always gone to the seminars, and I was just floored by that talk. Um, uh, it, uh, it was an amazing talk. Alan's a very good speaker, and he had a really good story to tell. Um, but, and he told it in a way which made it really easy for me to understand not just what he was going to end up talking about, but he began with a whole introduction to cosmology, and what were the puzzles in cosmology, and what did we know, and what didn't we know. So it was great for someone just, you know, from right. he knew nothing, just to go through that and realize, okay, he's told me the story, we understand a lot more about cosmology than I realized, but now there's this puzzle about why is the universe so homogeneous, so uniform? Why is the universe not curved when it could be? And, and, and then he had this great idea that this could be due to a, of all things, a phase transition that occurred in the early universe. A phase transition is like the transition that occurs when a liquid freezes and forms a solid. And so it's like condensed matter physics, but on the scale of the universe. And I thought, oh, okay, he's now talking about something which is a, a, a something I, I recognize. Um, I never thought of it as being relevant on a cosmic scale before. Mm -hmm. And then it, this phase transition turned out to be due to a field, a, a Higgs-like field um, associated with a quantum field theory, grand unified theories, which was the other thing I was working on. Uh, so now two things I was interested in were somehow related to a third thing which I didn't know anything about, which was cosmology. Uh, and then it seemed like a beautiful solution to the problem. Uh, just by having a period go through this phase transition, it would trigger a period of very rapid accelerated expansion, which would smooth out any initial inhomogeneities in the universe, right. leaving behind a universe that was smooth and flat. Uh, great. Uh, and then came the final few minutes. I thought the talk was over. I was, you know, this is great. He solved a big problem. In the final five minutes, he explained why the idea fails. Uh, and he explained that the problem being that once this inflation starts, 
It's so rapid, it creates volumes of space so rapidly, it never ends. And he couldn't, he had, you know, he, and he talked a little bit about some work he had done with another physicist, Eric Weinberg, had begun to show that there's, there's no way of getting around this problem. End of talk. Um, and so I just sat there stunned. <laughs> I thought, I was so excited about this, and then all of a sudden, you know, I was going up, 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 and then bam, crash. You know, I was getting so excited, and suddenly it became the most exciting, then the most depressing talk I'd ever heard. How could such a beautiful idea like that fail? Um, so I thought, okay, I should think about this. Um, I can give it a few weeks and, and think about it and see if I can come away around it. There must be some way around it. And since I knew something about phase transitions, I thought, well, maybe... You know, maybe there's something you can do with phase transitions that would yeah. help you get around it. So um, uh, that's how I got into it, thinking it was going to be a few weeks diversion <laughs> from my regular work, but uh, this di digression has not, has not ended since. Okay, well, keep going. Um, okay, so, um, well, like a lot of things I do, um, this is one of those projects that had many, many twists and turns. It's not a simple line that says how I got from sure. that to what was uh, uh, the first workable model of inflation. Uh, the twist uh, went something like this. Uh, I said uh, he had this phase transition. Yeah. And the way he was going to begin end the phase transition, uh, the only way he knew to end a phase transition was by uh, spontaneous nucleation of bubbles that would carry you past the barrier that was... You had, a, you had an energy barrier that was keeping you in this phase that was inflating, and you needed to get past it. And his idea was to quantum tunnel through it, producing bubbles, uh, using an idea that was actually had been developed by my thesis advisor, Sidney Coleman, this bubble nucleation idea. So I was familiar with that. But the problem was, it was fast, you couldn't produce the bubbles fast enough compared to the inflation. That's right. how he got stuck. So the idea that I had was, okay, uh, he was assuming that the universe was perfectly uniform, but what if there were defects in it, like there are in solids? Those defects can seed nucleation events much more rapidly than if you wait for it to happen spontaneously. And there was an obvious such seed in the story, which was having to be a magnetic monopole. So you were trying to get rid of these magnetic monopoles by inflating them away, according to Guth's idea. Right. But another way of getting rid of them would be if they kind of, we call, I call it dissociation, they simp their core simply expands. And they themselves are the core, is the source of the phase transition. That's kind of what I worked on for a period of months and developed that idea and showed that it was, but didn't, wasn't quite, didn't quite work. Uh, but it was a really, but it involved a lot of interesting new new ideas. Uh, interesting enough that even though it didn't work in the cosmic setting, I thought, well, maybe we can do it in the laboratory. Now, in the laboratory, the analog of a monopole is what's called a vortex, like a vortex in a superconductor. Mm -hmm. So, could you find dissociation of vortices in a superconductor, or maybe dissociation of vortices in a superfluid? So, I began to look for examples. And I found an interesting system, the helium-4 helium mix, which turned out to be a nice candidate. But more importantly, it turned out that it had a very unusual a phase transition which, type, which I had never heard of before, called a spinodal decomposition. Hmm. So normally, in the kind of phase transitions that um, uh, Alan had proposed, you have an energy barrier that prevents you from ending the phase transition. So you get stuck there. Right. You super cool into this phase and just get stuck there. 
by the energy barrier and you just can't tunnel out. But what happens in the spinodal transition is that as you cool the system, the barrier just disappears. So now there's nothing to prevent you from getting out. And once I realized that that's what the phase transition was in the helium three for some that was the solution that was needed. Yeah. Inflation. Why can't we have a phase transition like that? And that was the that was the um, the line of you know twisted turn line of reasoning that led to the idea of let's do that uh, in the cosmos. And the uh, and by around this time, I sort of begun to develop the idea in the summer of, uh, I guess, 1981. And then in fall of 1981, I moved to the University of Pennsylvania, where we're speaking right now. And I had a, a young graduate student who came to me, Andy Albrecht, looking for a project. I said, let's, let's work this out. And that ended up being how so-called new inflation, or the first model of inflation that could actually, that we thought could end the inflation not right. just have the inflation that could end it, right. uh, could, um, th that's how that idea was born. And, and what was the reaction to other members of the field, your, your colleagues and others, uh, as, uh, as these developments occurred? Uh, but what was the, was there skepticism originally? Was there widespread embracement of these ideas? How did that play out? I think, I think, you know, Alan was a very effective communicator. I think many people were excited by his idea and had, I don't think I'm the only one that might have had the reaction that, that I did. Um, uh, and um, so I, I, I think it depended upon the circles in which I was speaking. If there were people who had never heard of any of these ideas before, I, I won't name the place, but I remember giving a, a, uh, a seminar very early on, the f one of the first seminars I gave on this idea of how to end the phase transition, was stopped. It's the first time ever I'd ever heard or seen of a talk being stopped in the, you know, after about two-thirds of it. Two -thirds. Because I think, I, 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 although they gave me some excuse, you know, someone has to come into the room or something, <laughs> I was convinced they thought I was a complete nut, you know, uh, talking about this stuff. Um, but uh, can, you, can, you, can you just tell me where we'll edit it out or something like that <laughs> <laughs> afterwards? <laughs> but uh, um, but uh, in but play, but in major institutions that people found yeah. it immediately very interesting, and um, and but there were immediately but also it wasn't a complete idea. There there were two immediate problems. You smoothed the universe out, but you had to figure out how to get back matter in it. You have to reheat the universe afterwards. Right. And so that was the first project that I worked on after we developed that idea. But the bigger problem, the really worrisome problem was uh, this inflation was so effective that it seemed to make the universe so, so glassy smooth that you'd never make structure in the universe. It would be too smooth. You over, it was overkill. Right. You had to figure out some way to de-smooth it. So what in the world was going to do that? Um, and well, if it's going to happen during the inflation, the only thing you left out of the story was the quantum physics. So could quantum physics solve this problem? After all, inflation, was, if it, it, uh, without quantum physics, would make it glassy smooth. That means the energy everywhere in space would be identically the same. Quantum physics doesn't allow that to happen right. to energy. It forces energy to fluctuate. So it's going to produce some kinds of fluctuations. And as we began to think about that problem, we realized, oh, this is a real threat 
because we thought we made the universe smooth, but now we actually may have ruined things when we put it into quantum physics. And you can't not put it into quantum physics. Sure. It's part of their nature. So maybe the idea doesn't work after all. So in the first months, it was kind of a scary moment, moments as we began to first do calculations of, um, uh, of, the, of the perturbations. So this is work that I was doing uh, initially with Michael, Michael Turner at right. the University of Chicago. Um, and, and this issue of how to do this computation, it wasn't straightforward. Nowadays it's straightforward, we teach it in our classes. But there were a lot of subtle questions about how in general relativity you properly account for the fluctuations right. and, and distinguish what is a real physical fluctuation that might form a galaxy from um, an, a mathematical artificial thing where I just happen to choose my hyperservices of constant time and general relativity in some uneven way. Right. It's not that the universe is really uni non-uniform, but my mathematical coordinates right. are, are non-uniform. And that was a subtle problem that people had known was a problem for probably decades, but had recently been worked out by uh, a solution to that problem, a good solution to that problem had been worked out by a, a theorist uh, at the University of Washington is John Bardeen. So Mike and I con contacted John and said, we'd like to use your method for um, our problem. Do you want to collaborate with us? And that's, so our paper ended up being the three of us collaborating. Um, by this time, I had mentioned this t issue uh, to Alan, and he began to do his own little calculation. And it turned out Stephen Hawking was doing his own little approach, and Alexei Starobinsky was doing his own little approach. And a few years, about a year or so earlier, uh, Slava Mukhanov and uh, Chibasov had, had done a sort of calculation, although it, it was subject to some of these issues. That were, was not using a trustworthy method, but they had thought about this idea. So it wasn't just one of us. It turned out there were a bunch sure. of us. And uh, so this is now, this be, so the paper on inflation, papers on inflation came out in early 82. Summer 82, Stephen Hawking, um, um, organized a meeting called the Nuffield Conference in Cambridge in which um, most of those people were gathering. And we all kind of knew this was the thing we had to work out. And we all knew where, where there was competition in it. Right. And, uh, and all of us came to the meeting with a kind of rough answer and the answers were different. And then by the end of the three weeks, you know, everything kind of converged. Yeah. And you'll hear a different version. I'm sure each of us has a different version of what I'm influenced you, what. But I yeah. No, but I mean, I, 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 I felt that, um, I guess my own view is that the, uh, although different methods, you know, were giving different answers, as we, there were different subtleties that had to be worked out. The nice thing about the method we were using, and, and that's why it's part of the sort of permanent story these days, is that it was the one mathemat mathematically trustable method where you you could solve this problem I was describing. It's sometimes called the gauge invariance problem. Mm -hmm. How do you separate out the real physical fluctuations from the, from the mathematical right. coordinate ones? It was the one method which had that. The other ones were kind of alighting over that issue by giving sort of heuristic arguments. Now it turned out the heuristic arguments they used did give the right answer, but you could have easily changed those heuristic arguments. They gave a different answer. Sure. So, they were, you know, so after the fact, you could be sure they were right. But if those had been the only answers, then I think we, you know, we would have been debating it for some, some time. 
So the fact that all of the groups ended up converging on the same thing was, I think, the important event. Uh, and w it, when you were converging, when you were working on this, how much interaction was there between all the different people? Pretty or? intense, because we were all staying in, you know, within a mile or so of one another in Cambridge. Some of the, some of the, many of, actually, most people were staying in the same place. I wasn't because we had a baby and uh, uh, my wife and I were staying off some you know, distance away. <laughs> we, had always, we always had to walk in sometimes <laughs> to, to catch up with the rest of the group. But it was like an intense, you know, 24 hour, up 24 hours for three weeks kind of intense uh, yeah. session, at the end of which it was beautiful to see that the answers agreed. And that was when the subject really took off because no one had thought about the, you know, Alan had never thought about the quantum fluctuations when he originally proposed the idea. Um, hmm. And now suddenly uh, there was good and bad news about these quantum fluctuations. Uh, good news was they were scale invariant, uh, which tr uh, that is to say that uh, if you think of the, uh, the fluctuations as a combination of waves of different wavelength, the amplitude of the waves that you were summing were more or less the same, approximately the same from wave to wave. Not perfectly so, but approximately so. Right. And that turned out to be something which theorists had speculated 10 years earlier, just based on looking at the sky, might be the kind of input you need to explain the sky, the, the distribution of galaxies we observe in the sky. And so now it comes out as a consequence. So now it came out as a consequence. Good news. Bad news, the amplitude of those waves was way too big. Um, too big to be consistent with what we observed. So it meant that the original idea of Allen was out because he could never end the inflation. And then the idea that had been replaced it replacing it, which was just to make the barrier go away, wasn't enough. You need to do something else mm -hmm. to, to not just get the scale invariance that you got, but to get the amplitude to be as tiny as we knew even then it had to be. And later we have actually measured that amplitude, but we knew from measurements that it had to be below a certain bound. Uh, t these had to be tiny little waves, but not giant waves. But nonetheless, in terms of the general sense of consensus within the discipline, within the field, uh, my understanding is there was a sense that uh, of convergence upon the right model, well, the right Well, so although it turned out that the, that the next round had failed, we were immediately able to uh, uh, um, write down, okay, th this, is, this is what you need instead. So it has, you still want to save some of the ideas that were there before, right. something like a field, something with a field which has an energy associated with it, which is large and positive, which drives the inflation, and which right. is not protected by an energy barrier. Right. But you needed to carefully fine-tune that field, right. the, way, the, the strength with which it interacts with itself and with other interactions, and extremely fine-tune it. But if you did that, then you could get everything you wanted, the smoothness, the flatness, and now density fluctuations that could have seeded galaxy formation, that, could have, that we might someday see in, even in the microwave background, uh, you might, see, you might uh, get that from this, although there's a cost, which is this fine-tuning, which is, uh, uh, I think, at the time the view was, uh, we'll solve that fine-tuning problem, we'll find out why that has to be the way, how it, that is. Has to be the way it is, but... Um, uh, but it's great that we have all this. And so there was a tremendous amount of optimism uh, and a lot of focus on the fine-tuning problem that has endured for 30 years uh, as we've tried to deal with that fine-tuning problem uh, and never really solved it. Um, so it looks like 
uh, one of the problems with this inflationary idea that we don't know how to get around is that the, it has different parameters in it, different uh, interactions uh, of the field with itself that have to be carefully adjusted to make it work. It's, it's not its worst problem, but it was the first problem. It's the one that most people have worked on. And by worked on, I mean, they've therefore found alternative uh, energy forms, sources of the energy that could drive the inflation. And then when you look at them, you say, oh, it didn't, may not have thought it was fine-tuned, but if you look a little carefully under the hood, yeah, there it is. There's the fine-tuning. It's always, it's always there hidden someplace in, right. in each of the theories. We've never gotten around it. Current attitudes about that aspect are, well, maybe we have to live with fine-tuning. Um, and in the meantime, the observations have taken off. Yeah, so this inspired various sets of observations. Uh, one of the predictions of the theories that the universe should be flat. And at the time, we, we thought that meant is that um, uh, in addition to ordinary matter, there must be enough dark matter to bring the total energy density of the universe up to the critical density. So 95% of, so we knew that the ordinary matter that we observe every day, you know, consists of only 5%. Of the, to of the critical density needed to make the universe flat. So it meant we had to find another 95% someplace. So this really energized astronomers to try to get uh, tighter constraints on how much dark energy there is, what is the curvature of the universe, uh, and what kind of dark energy it would be. Would it be something which is very light relativistic particles like neutrinos, or something very massive and weakly interacting, or, or other possibilities. So it spawned this whole industry, which had already, in the astronomy community, had somewhat of a fledgling start. They already had found some evidence for dark matter, sure. but they didn't really have a good handle on how much. And it took you know, another 20 years. So like way settle. back in the... This is 19, early 1980s, so it took about 20 years to settle that how much yeah. issue. Um, but, so that was one kind of industry. Um, the other industry was the cosmic microwave background field suddenly had a new energy, there was a new energy to it, that is to energizing to it, in the, uh, because now there was something to definite to look for. Because if this idea was right, then we should see a scale invariant spectrum of hot and cold spots in the microwave background. Um, yeah. now at the time, I have to say that I was kind of naive, and I thought, um, it would take 50 years or something really? before we had to worry about it. Yeah, I never, I didn't know, you know, it wasn't, and at the time, you know, I don't know, was, what, no one had ever measured anything, any anisotropy in the microwave background. No one had an idea how long it would take. Yeah. At least I, did, I wasn't, remember, I'm coming from the particle physics field. I'm sure. not interacting with people in the cosmic microwave background field, which was a small, fledgling, little isolated field of its own then. Right. Um, so... Uh, I thought I was safe, <laughs> uh, but it took, um, it took uh, less than 10 years uh, before we began to see fluctuations in the microwave background. And, and then when we did see them from the COBE satellite experiment, right. the first thing uh, they pointed out was that they're, they're nearly scale, they're scale right. invariant is right. what they declared. Right. Now, um, wasn't quite right. It would, so one thing that people, uh, many of the astronomers didn't absorb from uh, that exchange uh, associated with the Nuffield of these various groups, uh, most of the other groups, in fact all of the other groups came out and declared that the spectrum should be scale invariant. But actually a more precise calculation, which 
since our calculation was more rigorous, we, it had that precision, said actually it's not scale invariant, it should be slightly tilted away from scale invariance. Really? Yeah. So our paper was called nearly scale invariant, not scale invariant. Whereas if you look at the other ones, you'll see they talk about scale invariance. So when the COBE results came out, I realized something that they were missing was they only fit it to scale invariant spectra. They should have been fitting it to nearly scale invariant spectra. And so that's how I got into the microwave background game. So the first thing we did is we wanted to calculate hmm. uh, the power spectrum, the prediction, the theoretical predictions uh, for models which included the effect of near scale invariance. And the other thing they were missing, they had left out entirely, was that you could inflation, you should inflation, have a spectrum of gravitational waves. And they would also have an imprint on the microwave background. And that wasn't included. And furthermore, it should have the gravitational wave should produce a polarization. And that wasn't, they didn't even discuss polarization. Hmm. So there was lots to do. So, you know, after Kobe, sort of my focus turned to, for the next few years on the microwave background and how you would, you know, look for these, for this evidence of, an, of scale invariance, tilt, gravitational waves. And uh, I think we wrote among the first, you know, now it's an industry, but I think we wrote among the first computer codes to do those calculations. Right. And to point out the degree to which you can and cannot measure things. So what were your conclusions? Um, the conclusions were that um, you should be able to measure this tilt, mm -hmm. but you have to watch out if they're, if they, uh, if the, if the, so at the same time that inflation produces through quantum fluctuations, uh, fluctuations in density, it produces fluctuations in space-time that form gravitational waves. They should be more or less comparable in strength because they're being produced by the same physics. Mm -hmm. You have to watch out for that because that will produce a big effect when you begin to compare um, um, uh, the temperature fluctuations on large spots or large scales compared to small scales. Right. It will change very much the relative distribution that you'd expect. And so if you didn't take that into account, you might think things didn't fit when they actually fit. Mm -hmm. uh, and then for the polarization, the nice thing about that is that was a one way of separating out the gravitational wave contribution. Then you could go back and do the temperature calculation more accurately. We kind of outlined that. Uh, we also pointed out that there were some degrees of freedom that were more difficult to separate in the microwave background because some features, uh, like when you um, uh, look at the distribution of hot spots and cold spots on different scales, uh, some of those things didn't just depend upon one parameter, let's say, the, the amount of ordinary matter, but it might also depend on the amount of dark matter, or it might depend on um, other, other features, like the tilt. Right. And so, you, so some things, you, so we were trying to straight, sort of turn this into a program of how do you use the microwave background, what, what can you learn from the microwave background, either individually about different cosmic uh, features, or maybe it's just combinations of them. Right. And if it's just combinations, what other data could you bring in to separate right. this degeneracy? Right. Right. So those are the kinds of things we were doing, which you know, then became a big industry for, for in, in the field for the next, well, up to, even up to the present, you know, it continues. Right. And, and while this is going on, up until more and more recently, your thoughts on inflation as a principle, standard inflationary mm -hmm. cosmology, are moving in what direction? What other concerns do you have? You were alluding to something a little bit before. Well, okay, so, um, so already, surely after inflation was developed, two big issues 
Uh, so you mentioned fine-tuning. Yeah. Fine-tuning was not, a, I, I'm putting that as a third issue. Oh, okay. So that's a, so that, although that's the one that, that most people spend their time on, actually that's not the, the real problem. The real problem is that, um, uh, well, the two, real, the two big problems are, are first of all, um, we didn't properly th think through um, how inflation gets started. So what we said is, if you have inflation and you have some distribution, some random distribution of matter and energy coming out of the Big Bang, it will smooth it out. But we said, if you have inflation, what does the inflation need? It turns out the inflation needs a universe which is rather smooth and flat. And that was the thing inflation was supposed to be doing for you. Uh, and it needs it to be smooth and flat over a fairly large scale, larger than the size of the horizon, the largest distance of, that you could see at that time. So it has to occur over a scale which normal physical processes wouldn't be able to interact. And so this is what we sometimes call the initial conditions problem. We don't know how to initiate inflation. Instead of it being taking over easily, inflation can only take over if someone has already smoothed out the universe to, to a significant degree. Which solves the problem with. that you wanted to solve to begin which with. So, yes. In fact, in fact, if by some measures, by I think the most reasonable measures, you discover that um, e even though it's, it would be so, so we're trying to explain why the universe is uniform and smooth. And we say, coming out of the Big Bang, that's very unlikely. It's not impossible. It could be by chance it came out that way. It just seems like it requires a conspiracy over large scales. So very, very unlikely. Right. That's true. But as unlikely that, as that is, the condition you need to start inflation turns out to be exponentially more special, more unlikely. Um, so in order to explain your first unlikeliness, you've actually had to go to a situation which is exponentially more unlikely. And that was first pointed out by Penrose using a, a very clever but sort of subtle argument. And then over the decades, other arguments have been developed. Wasn't it 10 to the Google or something? Like, wasn't, it's it, like, so, it, wasn't it something yeah, it's crazy? A, like yeah, I like to describe it as the worst prediction. You know, you're trying to explain why we are the way we are. And following this line of reasoning, you, line of argument, this, this statistical measure he proposed, uh, which turns out to agree with other statistical, other ways of doing the, the estimate, yet you end, end up saying that we're only likely in the part of one part in 10 to the Google or less. It's an upper bound. Yeah, so, so it's an extremely bad, extremely bad, disastrous situation. So that's the initial conditions problem. Right. Now suppose uh, uh, you take the point of view that some physicists say today, they say, but we don't understand the initial conditions, harumph, harumph. You know, maybe something in quantum gravity solves them. Well, my first reaction to that is to say, if you really have such a thing, then you really don't need inflation because you just solved the problem. Right. But I'll give you the harumph, harumph. Now you have to run into the next problem. I give you, I let the inflation get started. I managed to get it started. And we thought we managed, we thought, you know, through the ideas that Linde and Albrecht and I had introduced, we had figured out how to get it to end. But we were wrong. We misunderstood the quantum physics part of the story. Um, we assumed that um, this phase transition would occur um, when we, assume, when we calculated this, when we, when we first calculated the rate at which the phase transition that would end inflation would end, we ignored quantum physics. Then we said, oh, it made the universe too smooth. We better include a little quantum physics in there right. to make the fluctuations. So we'll now suddenly add the quantum physics, a thinking that because quantum physics, we normally think about it as being a very right. weak effect, right. it, 
it would only weakly or smallly perturb the story. So what it would give us is a smooth, nearly smooth, flat universe with some tiny little hot you know, regions that are slightly hotter or colder than average. Now, what's causing those regions that are slightly or colder than average? Well, it's because um, what is controlling whether the, when the phase transition ends is, for example, the value of a certain field. And that field doesn't have the same value everywhere in space. And so depending, and the quantum fluctuations keep changing its value in one place compared to the other. So in some places, it will cause the field to have a value that end a little bit earlier than others, in some places a little bit later. And that's what's leading to this beautiful prediction that everyone's celebrating and, and as, you know, uh, as being a prediction of, the, of inflation. But quantum physics doesn't let you stop there. Every now and then, there's going to be some quantum fluctuation that keeps the inflation going for much longer than you expected. It's going to be what you think would be a rare region. It's going to be a rare event. But it's a rare event which, when it happens, produces a tremendous amount of inflation. Right. So it's rare, if you like, at the beginning. But if you look a moment later, it's actually most of the stuff in the universe. So the patch of the universe that you thought, you thought almost everywhere in the universe had ended inflation, except for maybe a tiny little speckle here. It's actually but the reverse. Yeah. It's a tiny little speckle where it ended, and almost everywhere is still inflating. And so that leaves a chance for this to repeat itself. The part that's still inflating can once again get, you know, a transition, end the phase transition, but there'll always be a rare region that takes over again, leaving you now with two of these patches, three, four. And in fact, this process occurs eternally. So this is what we call eternal inflation. We thought we had ended inflation, but we had failed. When you properly take account of the quantum physics, it is eternal. And that was something that was first shown by, I think I had the first model of internal inflation, and then uh, Alex Valenkin came by uh, independently in the, a year, in the when, year. When was this exactly? 83. Okay. And so this, this meant a nightmare, because um, the second problem isn't just that you produce many patches, but the patches aren't the same. The same quantum physics that's producing, that's driving this whole thing, means that some of these patches, depending upon what quantum fluctuations they underwent before the patch formed, will be flat, like we observed, but some of them will not be. Some of them will have scale invariant spectra, like we hoped, but some of them won't be. Um, and the same, uh, some of them will be smooth and homogeneous, but some of them won't be. In fact, sometimes these regions, patches collide, in which case you get regions which have lots of matter in them, but they're very non-uniform, anisotropic, um, and don't have any of the properties that we, not flat, and none of the properties we want. And because this process is eternal, you actually get an infinite number of every one of these possibilities. So instead of driving the universe the way we hoped, from some random initial state into a common final condition, consistent with what we observe, in fact, what inflation has done is, it needs a, it's hard to start, and if you ever manage to start, it produces a mess if it is in you know, a multiverse, what we call a multiverse, uh, patches which, which explore a multitude, literally an infinitude, of po possible cosmic outcomes. So if I'm somebody uh, who's watching this, maybe, mm -hmm. I'm a, maybe I'm a lawyer, or maybe I'm a political scientist, mm -hmm. or maybe I'm a gardener, or what have you, and I say, okay, here's my sense of what this Professor Steinhardt is saying. He's saying, we had a problem uh, because the universe has these particular characteristics that we couldn't explain and seemed yeah. unlikely. Yeah. And then it turned out that what seemed to be a promising approach, a solution to this problem, involved three separate 
issues. Um, the first issue was we had to make a very, very particular choice in order to launch this mechanism in the way that it turned out to be launched. The second is that it turns out that even if one considers that, that is less likely to happen, far less likely to happen than all sorts of other possible yeah. things. And the third is that even if that somehow is happening under those conditions, it will never actually stop, and yeah. it will, uh, which is not consistent with... And produce a multitude of patches of, with every possible outcome, which means that the theory hasn't, you know, anything you call, you can't assign a prediction to such a theory. <laughs> it's literally every physical outcome is possible, occurs an infinite number of times. Right. So anything you'd measure, there's no way of, it's a theory which says, Anything is possible. And, and anything, right. not just possible, but to some extent, I guess, will happen. I will mean, happen, yeah. So, 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 so I'm this guy who's, who's watching this, mm -hmm. and I think, well, it's time to pack up and say, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. That sounds like a big fit, not just a little fit. That sounds yeah. completely like a wrong idea. Um, so so the, the obvious questions are, um, do other people feel that way? What would somebody who feels uh, differently say? How would they respond to these criticisms that, that you've made? Um, and I guess a related follow-up is, um, how is it possible to have such extreme, extreme views? I mean, let me rephrase that question, because I don't think it was terribly well, well posed. So Again, if I know nothing about this, I, I would start losing faith in the scientific process when I mm -hmm. would hear this sort of stuff. You don't mm -hmm. have to calculate one thing or know one thing. This sounds like it's not just wrong. It's just completely, emphatically, stupidly, ridiculously wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, what are, we, what are we paying these guys money for if they're coming up with <laughs> <laughs> this guy? What are my tax dollars going for if, uh -huh. if, if this, is, this is what these greatest minds of today are actually saying? Um, so, so let me ask two different questions. So the first is, what would the response by an active proponent of inflation be today mm -hmm. to that? Um, and, and the second is, uh, is there starting to be a growing sense of frustration amongst the, the theoretical cosmology community in, in resonance with some of your concerns? Or would you consider yourself more in the minority? Okay, uh, it's a good, good set of questions. Um, I think you get a wide range of reactions. Um, uh, I think there's a, uh, this is an interesting sociological scientific situation where an idea has become largely accepted by a combination of communities, astronomy, particle physics, cosmology, um, and, uh, and the realization that it has the problems I discussed has only dawned on them after this acceptance has uh, so they've taken become committed place. to it. So they've become committed to it, and um, and so uh, the, so the, the way science often works when it comes to a situation like this is that someone working in the field actually may not even know about or have control of or have thought about all aspects of the idea. If I'm an astronomer who's trying to um, uh, use the distribution of galaxies to measure the amount of how close we are to a flat universe. My measurement has a validity whether or not the of theory course. is true. But I use the but but I use the theory as an 
inspiration for why I'm doing the measurement, but I don't really examine it in detail. So there's a large number of people, I think, in the community who joined into the field beginning in the 80s, even though in the 80s, both the initial, all three problems, the fine-tuning problem, the initial conditions problem, the multiverse, even though they all were, began to be understood at that time, a uh, number of people entered the field saying, well, I'm going to assume that those problems will be solved, and I'm now going to work on this aspect. And now we have several generations have gone by, of students have gone by, who have, you know, they've been educated that this theory works. They don't, they're not taught about the initial conditions of the multiverse problems. So to some degree, you have to remind people or tell them, you know, actually there are these problems. It's not now that they've been around for a few years. So I think in the early years, I think many people, including myself, I was naive about it too, thought, yeah, these are problems, but we'll work those out. Men should get past the other ones, we'll manage to work these out. Um, so I think in the early years, it was some, that was a reasonable point of view. Mm. But I think what happened um, over the course of the 30 years is that every attempt to solve those problems has just failed. And it's failed in a way that makes it clear the problem is much worse than you thought. So, so for example, uh, let's take the multiverse problem. Many people thought, oh, um, it's true that it produces an infinite amount of everything in the multiverse. We, everyone agrees. So they don't argue about, the, about the, whether it produces a multiverse. Well, I should say most don't argue whether it produces a multiverse. But they'll say, well, I'll now add a new rule to my story, hmm. which will tell me which patches of, of universe uh, count more than others. How do I weigh the different amounts of universe uh, there are different patches of universe that come out of the multiverse to decide which one is more probable. So it'd be like if I gave you a bag of coins of dimes and nickels, and uh, you 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 could calculate which one is you could as long as it's a finite bag, right. you could say <laughs> you could say you could say definitively whether there's more than one or the other, right. and and you could do various spot tests uh, by taking samplings to say which is more likely than the other. But you'd have to have a rule. Yeah as to how you would do it. So, so they added, a, yes, they would add a rule, a yeah. so-called measure rule that would, or measure principle, that would, they hoped, would resolve this problem. Now, actually, that's a really big thing you're adding. I mean, by calling it a measure principle, it sounds kind of innocent, like just, uh, you're just adding a little thing. But the fact of the matter is, the fact that you're adding it is, the, is a sign that the theory has failed. Inflation was supposed to give you what you wanted already, and it didn't. You, the problem was coming out of the Big Bang, you had no idea what to expect, and what we observed was unlikely. And now inflation has produced an infinitude of possibilities. You're kind of back to where you started, and now you're going to add a measure principle to solve this. And if you were, imagine that you did find the measure principle, it's not inflation that's done anything for you, it's the measure principle that's done all the work, because without the measure principle, we just agreed that we, there was no solution. So it's a really big thing to add such a measure. And it totally changes your theory, and as you might guess, different measures might give you different results, and that's exactly what people found. Different measures would give you different things. But m much of their horror, it's also true that they haven't yet, even today, found a measure in which we end up being the most likely. So for example, the most obvious thing to ask is, you know, are there more bubbles of our type or other types? The answer is other types, by an exponential amount, like 10 to the Google. Um, are there, is there more volume in bubbles like us? Let's that's, that's count the volume instead of that, because inflation is all about making volume. Are there more like us, more volume like us, or not like us? Answer, not like us, by a factor of 
You, you can't even use the anthropic principle either. The anthropic principle. I mean, that's one of the few, yeah. few times you can't even use the anthropic principle. Yeah. I mean, normally, you can get away with it. Yeah, so, so, so that's often invoked, in fact, in combination with measures. So the measures get more complicated. Every time they fail, someone invents something more complicated. And sometimes those involve the anthropic principle. But the anthropic principle doesn't help you because among these infinitive multiverses or parts of the multiverse which are exactly like us, exact properties as us, but younger. And they're exponentially more probable than we are. Uh, so imagine bubbles or patches which are just a second younger than us. I think we could have existed a second ago if all the properties were the same. But what if I told you, but there's exponentially, like e to the 50, or 10 to the 50 times of more patches like that than like us, then it's really hard to explain why we're as old as we are. And there I just, I've, I've, I've separated all, all the bubbles that aren't like us. I didn't even count those. Well, even the ones that are like us, but just a little bit younger are more probable. And the reason is because uh, uh, the long, uh, as time goes on, you're inflating more and more, you're producing more and more volume. And that leaves room to produce more patches. So the later you wait to produce your patch, the more room there is to produce such patches, the more of them you produce. So younger patches, ones produced recently, are always more likely than older patches. And we're an old patch. We're 13.7 billion, <laughs> billion years old. And you know, so one that's 13.6 billion years old turns out to be hugely more probable than we are. Okay, so I'm going to bring back yeah. my skeptical gardener again, yeah. listening, listening to this. So my skeptical gardener is saying, okay, there, there, it seems to me there are two possibilities going mm -hmm. on here. One is that if I talk to another scientist uh, who's working in this field, they'll tell me uh, Steinhardt's wrong, he's crazy, he's got his figures wrong, he's got his numbers wrong, he's got his calculations wrong, he's got his science wrong, he's got his yeah. principles wrong, it's all wrong. Uh, used to be a good scientist, no yeah, longer. He's over, he's over the hill, <laughs> he's, he's done, he's finished, he's yeah. wrong. Uh, and this is why. And mm -hmm. they'll show me a bunch of calculations and show, no, 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 what are you saying? Or they'll say, yeah, okay, he's right, what he's saying, but we'll get around that eventually. I think they'll be in that second. I think most of them would be in that second category. So most of the people who work, you know, to, you know who, who would describe themselves as cosmologists actually don't work on those problems. But they would, I think they would say, the idea seems so sweet, much like the idea, attitude I had, the idea of inflation seems so sweet that it's got to be right. And so we think those problems will eventually be solved. Uh, but they haven't tried to attack them, and they haven't followed the attacks. But logically, so those it's problems... Only, it's only a fairly small community that, that has tried, struggled with this problem, a fairly small number of people out of all the people who work on things, uh, who have followed them. And so I think it's... Um, uh, so, they, they, uh, so when they say they, we think, they think it can be solved, they haven't thought very hard about it. To realize, I mean, the more you struggle with these problems, you realize it's actually, uh, as I said, they're much worse than you think. Uh, both of them, both the initial conditions and the multiverse are much worse than you think. Um, uh, because, yeah, I, I, we would have to go through examples, but... Well, they're bad enough. Yeah. I mean, I... Yeah, they're bad enough. They're bad enough, yeah. <laughs> yes. um, so, so, so let's so get I, so, to this so, idea so of... I, so I, so I, I was going to say that, sure. um, so up until recently, I think um, the attitude has... I, I should say, and the reason why they think the idea is sweet is because they were taught it in a certain historical order, just as we discussed it. 
ignore quantum mechanics and you see this beautiful idea. But once you add the quantum mechanics and add it properly, then the thing takes off in some direction you didn't expect. And they're so have it, and they like that first story so much. It's such a simple story. Stretch things fast and they become smooth. They can't get over the fact that quantum fluctuations can take over the universe and produce this multiverse out of it. In certain communities, I know, um, I find this especially when I'm in Europe, I've had this discussion in certain portions of parts of Europe where I, you know, I'll say, well, what do you think about the multiverse problem? And they say, I don't think about it. And they say, well, how can you not think about it? You're doing all these calculations and you're saying if you're, there's a prediction of an inflationary model, but your model produces a multiverse, and so it doesn't produce the prediction you said. It actually produces that, plus an infinite number of other possibilities, and you can't tell me which one's more probable. And they, they'll just say, but I don't like to think about the multiverse. I don't believe it's true. And I say, well, what do you mean? What about, what, which part of it don't you believe it's true? Because um, the input, the calculations you're using, general relativity and quantum mechanics and quantum field theory, are the very same things you actually are using to get the part of the story you wanted. And you're going to have to explain to me how suddenly other parts, other implications of the very same physics can be excluded. What about, are you changing the general relativity? No. Are you changing the quantum mechanics? No. Are you changing the quantum field theory? No. So why do you have a right to say that you just exclude it? So at the, there's and, and the kind answer, of a denial. And, and, and the answer is, we, they just, we a just reiteration, don't. we don't think about it. We just don't think about it. it just don't, yeah, somehow I think there must be something wrong with that whole multiverse idea. And there might be something wrong with, I actually think there might be something wrong with uh, our, the way we often describe the multiverse as patches of stuff. That may not be right, but the answer might be much worse than that uh, when, when you do the full quantum mechanical calculation. Okay, yeah. so not surprisingly, uh, faced with yeah. this situation, you've started thinking about other approaches. Yeah. Uh, so that's you have to. That's what you got to. That's what a theorist has so to you do. Certainly, you've certainly yeah. convinced uh, the, me, and I'm sure you've convinced uh, you're, you're a persuasive fellow. But uh, but I'm sure you've convinced the skeptical gardener and mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> maybe even a skeptical lawyer. Although it's hard to know what uh, what lawyers think. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of those alternative ideas, or at least your alternative idea, and and. And I'd like to, so tell me, tell me about some of that first. And then we'll oh, okay, I, I did want to mention one other thought, though, because I, so since we're talking yeah, about yeah, what's the thinking is inflation. So something has happened recently, which I think is at least, well, bicep, a, uh, right. yeah, which has had at least a right. jarring effect right. on people's yeah, idea about inflation. That. Yeah, so. So, so in you know, March of last year, there was this announcement by the BICEP2 team that they had discovered uh, a polarization signal, which they assigned to as being due to uh, primordial gravitational waves consistent with what you'd get from inflation. Um, uh, now, I just explained that the multiverse produces an infinitude of possibilities. Uh, in spite of that fact, people declared that as announcement as proof of inflation. In fact, some even declared it as proof of the multiverse. Um, so, which is an odd, odd phrasing. Um, uh, I mean, I'm talking about the leaders in the field. Uh, leading proponents who said, even said think peculiar sentences like, uh, oh, in the multiverse I wouldn't have really expected to see those gravitational waves. So it's great that we were lucky enough to be in the patch that has them. Which, I, again, an interesting construct. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I, I would have thought that you could just declare any, anything that you see as evidence of the multiverse.
Well, that is, <laughs> yes, well, okay, so then there's a question, yeah, so you could, uh, so actually a more extreme version of that question is, is there anything you could observe that would tell you that inflation is wrong? Right. Uh, and, I, and again, with the leading proponents of the field, many of the leading proponents, uh, 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 the way they answer that question is to say no, that inflation is so flexible that a no test or combination of tests can possibly disprove it. And it has three degrees of flexibility. Remember those are initial conditions I was allowed to fiddle with, there was those parameters I was allowed to fiddle with, and there's a multiverse I'm allowed to fiddle with. So it's, yeah, it's super flexible. And to which my reaction is one of, okay, that doesn't that mean you concede? And the, the answer is no. This is a perfectly, what's wrong with that idea? Uh, so we kind of have a philosophical difference here. And uh, I would have said a theory which is not testable, is not scientific, is not empirically testable, is not scientific. You can't eliminate it. And they would say, no, through the test, we'll just figure out which of the inflations and parts of, parts of the multiverse we happen to be in. Um, so that sounds like such extraordinary question begging that, yeah. that, that one possible solution on a sociological level would be to force people to take philosophy courses at an earlier age. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's a whole other yeah. issue. So, but I've actually suggested that. Oh, you have? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, been, <laughs> I've been saying that one, of the, I, uh, I, one thing I think we would benefit from would, would be sensible basic philosophy, which most physicists don't take. Um, uh, unfortunately, I haven't been able to, to encourage any, any philosophers to come in and weigh in on this. They have their own issues that they're interested in. Yeah. But uh, I think we would actually benefit from some basic reminding, you know, basic literature would be, would be helpful. And I think it is a confusion. Um, but, but I cut uh, you off with the, with the, with the yeah. bicep uh, yeah. thing because, because the, so there's then, more so, to it than, right. than their question begging. So, yeah, so people were ready to you know, declare inflation as having been proven on the basis of this. And then what we discovered was, um, in fact, that what they had observed was not primordial gravitational waves, but was a polarization signal due to dust within our own galaxy. Pollution. Um, their signal. And so then you would think, okay, if you just declared victory on the basis of the, of the discovery of them, doesn't that mean you have to declare defeat on the fact that you didn't see them? And then the immediate response of the proponents was, no, <laughs> our theory is flexible enough, we can do that too. And, you know, and then you immediately got a litany of papers, well, here's how we'll fix, how's, how we'll do that. And then you say, but, well, I think, I think this very public exposure has at least gotten some fraction of the community to realize there really are these problems of ultra-flexibility in the theory and non-predictability to the theory. What fractions? And when you say some fractions? I can't, I can't judge it because we no, don't no. vote. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I just want to uh, get a, get a yeah. sense from you. I mean, you're in the community. I'm not looking for a hard and fast. Yeah. Uh, let me I, guess I, I guess I've been to a number of meetings in which um, proponents have tried to sell hard that inflation is still in good shape. And occasionally there are things, you know, these things we do in conferences where people take votes and who believes inflation is proven, or who believes inflation is the yeah. only idea. And I think if you had asked that question in March of last year, you know, you know, almost everybody would have raised their hands if they believe in inflation. I think now, you know, at least in well, my latest experiences, just in, in those anecdotal experiences, you see actually people don't raise their hand. There's a lot more, except for a few proponents. So I think that means that people are at least rethinking the issue. Uh, I don't know how long that will maintain itself, but. The, but I think it's a, at least a, a shift in the right direction. 
Uh, part of it is you have to, as I said, the part of it is that the, the story you read in text sounds so simple that it's hard to believe it could be any problems with it, but it takes more work to see these problems. But once you see them, well, they dwarf the initial. They yeah. dwarf the initial problem. I mean, they dwarf the yeah, they, yeah, absolutely take over. Right. Yeah. He, he, here's what. Uh, so I'm yeah. obviously not an expert in this field, but this is what I thought with this stuff. I I, I actually thought, uh, unaware of the complications of the multiverse that you've been describing, I thought, well, if they do actually detect this primordial gravitational wave, and they can make sure that it's what they observationally say. what, well, yeah, exactly mm -hmm. what what they say it is. Well, then that is a, a prediction of the inflationary cosmology model, and so that, that's some very strong evidence. Otherwise, you would have to say, well, there must be some other model which predicts this particular thing, yes. and, and so, okay, and... Oh, they which, by the way, is possible. In other words, there's nothing about the gravitational waves if they were to be observed. Well, that, that, that's that what I'm saying. Inflation on them. Well, that, so, that, that's yeah, what I was getting yeah, to. So, yeah. so I'm saying. So my understanding was they, they were premature because they thought that this signal meant this, and in yes. fact it, it means something else because they didn't properly calibrate something due to dust or whatever right. it is. Okay. So they were premature. So they left the, So they they uh, they jumped the gun. And I thought, okay, well that's what it's about. Mm -hmm. But this idea that. Actually, it doesn't really matter what it is that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that they detect. They can justify it one way or the other. If they have that, that at some level, it seems to me from what you're saying that that a, a clear clear evidence of of something which can be construed as primordial gravitational waves can be used to justify inflation just as much as a non-detection of, of, of these particular oh, yeah. things. They've already, they've already <laughs> decided that. They've already written the papers that say things like that. They've already written papers which celebrate the fact that in my favorite model, I can adjust the parameter and get any answer that might be observed in the, in, in, in the, uh, by experiment, to which my response is, yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> that's not a good situation. Um, that's that's very unhealthy situation, but yeah, this is uh, this is the a, a mood of the you know, of the of a certain fraction of the community which is very um, uh, heavily emotionally invested in the inflationary idea, but there's also a large fraction I think which has seen this activity that has the same reaction you do. Oh, oh this isn't what we signed up for, you know. So I think there they would like to see something else develop, some other ideas develop, but there isn't something on the table now which is fully developed, fully thought through, that they find convincing. Yeah, but that's an opportunity to It's a work, tremendous right? opportunity. I, mean, I, I, I try to tell uh, students that yeah, this is exactly where you, where you want to be coming through because clearly this idea is wrong. <clears throat> And it has to be replaced. You know, I have some ideas about how you might replace it, but prob they're probably not right either. So, it, you know, we, we need new ideas. So uh, let's, um, you know, you should be, it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, it's a way of, you know, really getting past all these years of going in the wrong direction. And, you know, when you see a crowd going in this direction and you know it's the wrong direction, you should definitely be headed the other way. And, um, right. uh, but um, not many, I have to, I'm sorry to say, not many people do. Not yet. Not yet. But I think the, I think the, the intellectual forces, the scientific forces there, the problems we're talking about, no, no one is saying they've solved those problems. I, I don't think anyone is saying they, they've solved those problems. Uh, and certainly no one has convinced others that they've solved those problems. Those are pretty hard problems to solve. Yeah. I mean, 
I'm not even sure it's logically possible to solve those problems based on what you said, but perhaps. Yeah, no, I, I think that's I, actually I would support that. I think that it is um, uh, as one grapples with them, you realize that they're 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 completely um, sticky. I think you really need to. We think so. You need to ask yourself. So okay, you had an idea, you thought it worked, and it failed in particular ways. Obviously, I have to go back and change something that I assumed. So what can I change? What did I assume to make the theory in the first place? Not very much. I assumed there was a bang. I assumed there was general relativity or something like general relativity that described an expansion of the universe that was hot. Uh, and, uh, and that it began some random start with some sort of random perturbs, random wild state. And then I assumed somehow inflation took over and got things started. But that whole line of thinking has now failed because the inflation needs its own special start and because it produces the multiverse. So what do I, what do I need to do next? Uh, well, what can I change? Uh, I have to have gravity. Uh, so how about the idea of the bang being a beginning? Uh, and so what if the bang were instead were a bounce? That is to say, it isn't the beginning. It's just a transition from some kind of, we'll say it's vaguely saying contraction phase to some kind of expanding phase. Yeah, we've seen what phase would, transitions before. So. Yeah, so would that, would that, um, what would that, that, could that possibly gain you something? Well, as you think about it a little bit, it automatically begins to do some really good things for you. Uh, one of the problems we had in explaining why the universe was so uniform was that according to the Big Bang Theory, distant regions that we see in the universe, I'm sorry, according to the Big Bang Theory without inflation, before we had the inflationary idea, the distant regions that we see in the universe hadn't been in causal contact before. So the idea of inflation was to say, oh, actually, they were much closer together in the past, and then they were thrown apart during inflation, and that's why they seem to be far apart now, but actually, secretly, they were close together. That's what, okay, that was, but that unfortunately led to this failure mode, that whole line of reasoning. What's the second idea? Actually, the universe didn't begin at the Big Bang. There was lots of time before the Big Bang. Give me more time. There's plenty of time for regions to come in yeah. contact. So you immediately get around the contact problem. Um, another thing you immediately get around is the flatness problem. Uh, what was how is inflating solving the flatness problem? It was solving it by um, not setting it to zero, but by suppressing it by a huge amount, by this super stretching. And then after inflation ended, it begins to grow again, but you suppressed it so much that even today it's immeasurably small. That was the concept there. Right. Well, it turns out, if the universe is contracting, that automatically flattens the universe. Uh, if it's slowly contracting, it, uh, uh, one way of, you can see that in various ways, since we're not going to write equations on the board, I'll just say, uh, let's think about what the original flatness problem was. The original flatness problem was, uh, if you began from a Big Bang and were slowly expanding, not inflating, but were slowly expanding, the universe became more and more curved. And so today, why shouldn't you see a very curved universe? That was the flatness problem. Right. Okay, now roll that film backwards. The universe, which is very, very curved, is slowly contracting, and it becomes flatter and flatter. Right. So the same physics that's doing the, the curving on the way out right. does the flattening on the way uh, and the contraction in. So as long as I have enough contraction, then after the bang, there hasn't, it's only been a certain amount of time since the bounce. We, we used to call it the bang, but now you want to think it was a bounce. Um, it just hasn't expanded enough yet for the, for the curvature to be visible. That would solve that problem. Um, 
So just by changing that idea, you immediately introduce, solve um, two of the problems that inflation was designed to solve. Uh, you also open up the time domain so that one of the conditions was the initial conditions problem. And now you can imagine a very large universe, which is very classical, in which quantum physics isn't very important, uh, in which you could have set those initial conditions. So I haven't given any specifics here. I'm just saying... Just principles. Just consent, yeah, just yeah. as you begin to think of it, you're a theorist thinking about this idea. Uh, I wish I had been intelligent enough to think about it this way in the first place, but I came around eventually to think about it this way. Um, you realize that you immediately gain something just by replacing a, a bang with a bounce. Okay, now you have to do a lot more in this sure, area. You, you to. want to explain a lot of details. Right. Why, is it, why is it not just flat, but why is it smooth? Why is it so isotropic? Why, how do you get those density fluctuations? But you can fill in that blank, and may, probably in more than one way, with um, um, a sequence of events that would have occurred during this sure. period. Different uh, models, different mechanisms. But you, you have yeah. the basic picture, a, a, a revised picture and principles that, right. that avoids the essential pitfalls, obviously. Right. Um, so I think I'm going to have to, uh, we have somebody waiting, yeah, as, you know, know. Right. <laughs> as you know. Um, but that's a shame. Uh, fortunately, I will have the opportunity to talk to you tomorrow yeah. when we were going to talk about another one of your interests, and we still are. Okay. But uh, I'm just threatening you now. That okay. I want to. <laughs> I, I want to pick up where where uh, we left okay. off today. I want to okay. talk not just about your particular approach and the ekpyrotic universe and so forth, but yeah. I want to talk about what you were just alluding to, which is other a spectrum of possible different ways of looking yeah. at, at these things. Um, and I want to thank you ever so much for your time. Thanks. Sure. That was great. Yeah, thank great. you very much. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations about Astrophysics and Cosmology, along with separate discussions with Justin Curry, Rocky Cole, Roger Penrose, and Scott Tremaine. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. While those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.